time now to look into God's word. If you'll join me, we're going to open into Matthew chapter 2. Bob read it for us earlier, but as I tell anybody that I teach, including myself, it never hurts to hear something twice. Let's take a moment and just ask the Lord for help in this situation. Father, we're gathered to worship you. And as I am a weak vessel standing before this congregation, I just pray that the power and truth of your word would bring conviction and would bring encouragement to our hearts. That we would learn from the magi, the wise men, that we would reflect upon ourselves in looking at the responses of the chief priests and the scribes. And as we would think about Herod and any connection we may have to that, that we would leave here loving you deeply and realizing what this holiday is truly all about. Be with us, Lord, to have focus and attention and help me, Lord, to deliver your truth. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, you heard it read, but let's go through chapter 2 of Matthew. Um, if you're visiting, there's uh, Bibles in the pews. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. You can find it in the table of contents. It's about two-thirds into the entire Bible book. And Bob read for us from verses 1 through 12. I'm going to take us all the way through verse 18. And then I want to explain a little bit the three groups of people that we see here. One being King Herod, another being the wise men, which we sang about, and another group, the chief priests and the scribes. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now verses 13 through 18. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, 
For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So with three different groups of people to look at, we'll first zoom in on Herod. I call this Herod's hostility. So first we see that Herod was troubled. Likely he was simply concerned about the loss of his own kingdom. From this we can gather that he had a sense of what this baby meant. In all likelihood, we could say in normal circumstances that a king might rightly be concerned if some other king was coming to take over and overthrow. But he's learning about the birth of a baby. So why would a born baby be a threat to a ruler? We don't have all the glimpses from this text at least into all of the thoughts of Herod, but we do know that he was troubled. And so from this, Herod does something really interesting. He seeks information. He calls his scribes and Pharisees, sorry, chief priests and scribes, and he inquires. And so we see that he has trouble. He goes to counsel. He receives biblical instruction. And we'll come back and talk about the chief priests and the scribes and their role in all of this. But on the surface, Herod seems to be going in the right direction. But as we know, his response isn't honorable. He lies, in verse 8, to these wise men after he learns the information. At the end of the verse, he says, Come back and tell me that I too may come and worship him. And we know, as we just read from verse 13, that the angel of the Lord himself appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Herod's intent is to destroy this child. And just to make sure that Herod didn't leave any stone unturned, he makes sure that all of these people in all of this area suffer from the loss of their children. And so when we look at the response here, we're looking at somebody who should be headed in a right path. Learning about information from people who are clearly devout. Seeking instruction and hearing it from people who know God's word. But he goes on to fulfill himself as his own king. The title of this message being Responses to the Newborn King. Well, Herod had no part of that. He had no interest in losing his earthly kingdom, but more than that, he had no interest in submitting himself to the lordship of the king of the universe. Protecting himself, protecting uh, his kingdom, 
protecting autonomy became his motivation. He not only knew the place when they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, he knew the time when he went back and spoke to the wise men. But he simply felt threatened. And his result was something horrifying and horrible. And I point him out first because he's the one in this passage that's easy to recognize as the bad guy, if we want to look at it that way. And we always have in our own flesh this sense of we're not as bad as those people. And I know most everyone in this room and some of you, maybe I'll get to know. And I trust that nobody in here acts out in the way that he acted out. But we can learn from this. We can ask ourselves, when we receive biblical instruction, do we submit to it? When we are told about the king of the universe, do we carry on in our own kingdom? Jesus tells us later in the book of Matthew, when he begins a Sermon on the Mount, that if you've had hatred in your heart towards anybody, you've murdered them because of the intention of what you implied to do to his created people. We know that if you've told one lie, then you are guilty of having broken the whole law, as the book of James tells us. One sin operates like a chain-link fence. So we can pat ourselves on the back and recognize that we don't go to the great lengths in action that he does. But we can also glean from it and realize that we're all guilty of being untruthful. We're all guilty of protecting self. And we're all guilty of trying to be king over our own lives. But with that, let's contrast that with some good news because we didn't just sing a miserable hymn, we sang a joyful song, and that's the wise men. So if we look at verse one, we see that these wise men came. And this becomes such a familiar story that sometimes we lose sight of the things that people had to go through. We know that they traveled. We know their purpose. They seem to be fearless. They're going to a ruler and asking him for the information. So they likely have no idea his true motives and his intents. He even lies to them later, as I mentioned, and says, tell me where you find him and I'll come too. Praise God that for these wise men that the angel intervened and they never returned. Who knows what would have happened to them. These are things I hadn't thought about till I meditated on all of this seriously yesterday. But they studied. These are scholars. At the very least, they were students of astrology. And so they probably had some level of prestige. And yet, like the apostles will soon later do when Jesus calls his 12, they leave this behind. Now, they probably, after visiting the child, Jesus, they probably go back. But look at all that they were risking. They had likely no idea that if they returned, that King Herod himself could have taken their lives for having been a part of this worship that he was so troubled and angered by. But yet they go faithfully. They study the star. They have some sense of what's happening. They're not just going to see some amazing thing in the sky the way we want to see a lunar eclipse. They're going to worship, verse 2 tells us. And this is important because it tells us their purpose. And as we sang about several times, 
They offered them gold and frankincense and myrrh. And I'd say one month a year I study what frankincense and myrrh is, and then I always forget it the rest of the year. <laughs> I know what gold is. But what they offered and what those things are is not what's relevant here. If you look back in verse 11, they traveled all this distance to worship him and give their treasures. Treasures. So if gold and frankincense and myrrh are not part of us, that's not part of our culture, what treasures do we keep that get in the way, that cling to us, that become the idols that we harbor and nestle upon, that we need to rid ourselves of so that we can rightly worship? They didn't hold back. They're traveling. They're giving up their treasures. They don't realize it maybe, but they're risking their own lives. But they don't care. Look at verse 10. In my Bible here, I have many notes. Verse 10 has the biggest circle and the greatest stars around it because it jumps off the page to me. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Exceedingly with great joy. Another translation says, overjoyed beyond measure. I try to picture what that looks like. I've seen teams win championships. You might have sat on your couch and jumped out of it if your team won a championship. You might have had to wait way longer than you wanted for that electronic present that you were hoping for. And then when you got it, you might have freaked out. I know some kids in here who've done that. We know what rejoicing exceedingly is, but it wasn't over their treasures. It wasn't over their electronic device, metaphorically. It wasn't over their team. Their greatest joy came from the fact that they were going to meet their Savior, that they were going to meet their Lord. And I just point that out because we as Christians, we can understand all these verses, and we can understand the seriousness of treasuring our God. But then we let other things get in the way. Herod preferred his reputation. Herod preferred his kingdom. Herod preferred glory from men. Seemingly, these wise men want nothing but Christ. And our great joy ought to come from knowing him, being in communion with him, knowing with certainty that he has protected the state of our soul when we face him on judgment day. And so, how would they know this? It's an understanding given by grace of the gospel that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That at the cross, as was mentioned earlier, the holiness and the purity of God as mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, the Father made him who is blameless, without sin, having never sinned, becoming sin on our behalf. We having broken his law. We being the guilty ones. We being the ones who deserve the punishment. And him graciously taking it on in full, attributing his perfect life to our account, even though God knows full well we've never lived that perfect life, but he credits it to us, and at the cross, our sinful state, on him, 
at the cross in those dark three hours on the cross. That is known as the heart of Christianity. That is known as the great exchange, the double imputation. And I plead with you over Christmas in the excitement over how it feels to see someone else light up with joy when they get a present that you gave them. Or tonight, when you're thrilled to watch your favorite film again. Or whatever awesome Christmas festivity that you have, and they are indeed good. Take a moment and pray. Contrast it in your own mind to the reality that your soul has been forgiven from the wrath that you deserve. This is the joy that goes beyond measure. This is what overflows to make someone say, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's almost like a triple joy. Great joy, rejoiced, exceeding. We should be begging God to have a greater understanding of the gospel so that we could live by that. But there's more. Look at verses 4 through 6. Now many of you in here, I know you well and Based on the fruit and the testimony and the service of your life, you do labor, you do serve, you do consider the Lord your everything. He is your greatest joy. Praise God for that. I don't know anybody in here doing anything like Herod, though we're all tempted to think in ways as he thinks. But I want to look at the chief priests and scribes last because they stand as likely what's most typical in our world today. So, we go to verse 4. Now here's Herod, troubled, calling these chief priests and scribes, inquiring from them. And there's no indication here that they had to hesitate, that they had to go find their scrolls. The implication here is that they had the Old Testament memorized. For today's terms, hey, uh, you know where that Messiah guy is going to be born? Yeah, Bethlehem of Judea, everybody knows that before I make too much light of it, because it's a serious matter, think about how sad that is. They are called by an evil, loving king to be the ones who speak the biblical truth. They speak it. They're standing amongst men who are on their way to worship, to sacrifice all, and they don't go with him. They stay. They continue to submit to an evil ruler. And sometimes this resembles us more than anyone else because we have a veneer of a religiosity because we know some truth that we've been taught. So in light of that great exchange that I mentioned that should overflow our hearts with joy, we should also take a minute and say, what is it that's different from these chief priests and scribes and these wise men? Well, there's not enough time in this message to give the biblical explanations for this, but they do exist. And if anybody's interested, I could get you some information on this. But they're simple. I'll list them. Having a genuine love of God. Repenting, but not a worldly sorrow like Judas Iscariot that just leaves you carrying on in sin, but a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that produces a genuine humility, a soul that wants to battle against your own sin, that begs God to reveal the idols that you hold and harbor within your heart, to crush them and kill them because our God is worthy. How is your prayer life? Do you pray when it 
just fits you? Are you like Herod where you get troubled and, oh, now I should pray? Or are you daily communing with him through your thoughts, through your, through your words? And there's more, but I'll zoom in on two more. A hunger for God's word. Now, they had a hunger for God's word of some sense, but it was likely out of pride. They might not have realized that, but these chief priests and scribes were likely trained well enough to give you any Old Testament answer off the top of their head. But they didn't have a transformed life. That's the biggest piece. Somehow, in some way, by God's grace, I suppose, similar to the thief on the cross, these wise men knew the glory of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about who would travel such great distance to worship a baby? They must have known this is the savior of my soul. This is the reason why I will one day be told, well done, good and faithful servant. And so as I come to a close here, I just want to use these three different responses to encourage you and to also, if need be, bring some conviction. The Lord is worthy to be praised. That's why we're here. He sent us his only son, as many of us know, the John 3.16 verse. But he didn't come to just simply be a baby. He came to be the king. And that was known by everyone at this time. So the question is, is he king of your heart? Is he king of your life? If you are a Christian, do you take exceedingly great joy in his salvation for your soul above everything? And if there is something that gets you more hyped up and more excited than that thought, take that thought captive. Examine it according to the reality of what you are granted. And live according to that exceeding joy because you're going to need it. The Apostle Paul needed it when he was in prison, being slandered. And you can go through the book of Philippians and count how many times he says, Rejoice, rejoice, I have great joy. In fact, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He found it better to die and be with the Lord. He did not care what was stripped away. He didn't care if he was abused. He didn't care if he was slandered. And if persecution comes to the church, we need to be ready for that. And that is worth celebrating on Christmas. Not just a baby who is born cute and cuddly, but a conquering king who will return. And if you're not yet sure if you're in the kingdom and he is your king, if God's Holy Spirit is in any way upon you, having you question yourself, that maybe in some part you're similar to the chief priests and scribes. The call is simple. Repent and believe in the gospel. Live like you belong to God, or we may one day find out that we were never really of him. And how sad it would be on that day of judgment that he warns about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, to be told, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. And that is heavy, and that is weighty. And so with this, before I pray, I just close to remind you one last time be overjoyed beyond measure. Let nothing exceed the joy that you have other than the fact that God has sent us a king to rule over our souls and adopt us into his family. Let me pray.
Father, I thank you to be able to handle your truth to a degree, to be able to stand before these people gathered here, to think about the implications of why you came, to think about the reason behind your perfect life, to think about your substitutionary atonement and how it offers us our greatest need. Lord, let us enjoy the gifts that you provide, the earthly gifts, the things that are shiny, the things that beep and make noise and taste good. Let us enjoy all those things as gifts from you. But Lord, don't let them compare to the thought of your saving grace. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.